The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Coming soon to wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. President Trump delivers his first State of the Union address, but lifelong Republican and former party chair Michael Steele says after one year of the Trump presidency, the State of the Union is shaky. And the former Catholic seminarian, y'all knew that, right? Well, he has words for evangelical Christians who turned a blind eye to Trump's moral failings. In his third visit to the podcast, Michael Steele doesn't hold back. Michael Steele, welcome back. This is your third time. It's so great to be here with you for the third time. The third time. And there's no one better to talk to because the president's going to be talking about the State of the Union, the state of our union. And there's no better way to start this conversation than with something you said recently on Hardball. Listen. I have a very simple admonition at this point just shut the hell up and don't ever preach to me about anything ever again (laughs) i don't want to hear it because after telling me how to live my life who to love what to believe what not to believe what to do and what not to do and now you sit back and if the prostitutes don't matter yeah the grabbing the you know you know what doesn't matter the the outright behavior and lies don't matter to shut up. But if you're a baker, you do not do have thing. to bake a cake for a gay wedding. Yeah. That's, that's so, one of your rights. They, anyway. they have no, no voice. So that person who was saying there, there it was our friend Chris, Chris Matthews, Matthews yeah. another uh, friend of the podcast, yep. alum of the podcast. But this, what you had to say was in reaction to this latest nuttiness from so-called evangelical Christians. Right. Um, reacting to the news about Stormy Daniels and the reported money paid to her to keep her quiet about the uh, alleged affair she had with then private citizen Donald Trump. And everyone's giving him a pass. One said, let's give him a mulligan. Another one said something else. What does this say about the evangelical movement? What does it say about the Republican Party overall? It says, uh, well, let's start with the the movement uh, such as it is. Um, It it says that it has become no better. And this this point was actually made uh, by Susan Page uh, on, on Hardball that evening. It's become no different than any other lobbying group in town. It is in the business of getting something. And what they are willing to trade off for the something they want whether Supreme Court justice or tax cut or whatever, um, is their, in my view, their their soul, their their moral uh, underpinning, uh, the character of who they are. Remember, we're talking about... um, you know, individuals, and in this case, represented by leaders, because uh, I'm not—I don't want this to be all evangelicals, because I've gotten a lot of response from evangelicals around the country who said, "Thank you," because we are tired of our leadership, um, you know, putting us out this way and and putting us in a position uh, where they're mixing politics and and faith together. Uh, but it is the leadership specifically that is that is drawing this this. Uh, uh, this conversation in the direction that it's going. And the fact of the matter is, um, when you have spent the better part of, uh, uh, you know, 30 years telling the American people, as I said, you know, how to behave, what to think, who to love, who not to love, what to do, what not to do, you're wrong, condemn you, judge you, 
and now you're going to come back uh, because this man, the president, has given you a tax cut or a Supreme Court justice that you like. So I want, you know, Tony Perkins and others to give a mulligan to all those people that they condemned over the last 30 years. Where's their mulligan? And if you're going to be in the business of making these kinds of judgments, because I think the last place you need to be is in a place of judgment because the Lord said, thou shalt not judge. <laughs> you know, that's not our role. That's not our role. But if you want to go there, then check your hypocrisy. Because for me, it's, it's about um, being true to, to the Gospels and certainly being true uh, to yourself uh, and decouple the politics. It was a concern I had, Jonathan, going back um, from the very early days of my involvement in politics as I watched the then moral majority get embraced and encapsulated within the political structure, becoming an arm of the Republican Party. And that has led over that arc of time to where we are now. Um, the party did not used to be like that. It wasn't anti-religion by no means. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it recognized uh, in a very libertarian way was that that was a value set that you yourself could define. I didn't get to define that. No government absolutely would define that. Um, and no political party should define that. Uh, but here we are uh, in which you have certain individuals who cast aspersions on Muslims because they're not Christian. Well, that's not very Christian, <laughs> okay? Um, who cast aspersions on other faith traditions um, because of their politics. And that, to me, is, a, is, is not a good space to be in. And so with respect to the state of our union in that regard, it is not healthy. It is not healthy. We find ourselves to be much more judgmental. We find ourselves to be much more critical uh, about others and their lifestyles. I believe, as a Christian, as a Catholic Christian, um, that um, th- those are choices you get to make and decisions you make in your own life. I'm not going to be standing next to you at the pearly gate. That's between you and your maker. That's a one-on-one deal. You don't get to bring your friends to vouch for you. <laughs> okay? So that's one-on-one. So I don't, get to, I don't get to be in that space. So you have to, you have to be comfortable with looking the Lord Almighty in, in the eye and going, yeah, I condemn them, particularly given that he came here and condemned no one. What has driven me crazy about this last um, year, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly through the presidential campaign, is watching all of these people who have been doing the condemning, who have mm-hmm. been doing the lecturing, who have right. been who have been telling me and whichever part of me you sure. y- you think I'm talking about that that part of me is wrong or less than right. to see them bend over backwards to give this guy all kinds of breaks. I mean, I sit there and thinking, I grew up in the time when Reagan was president and George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush were mm-hmm. president, when they, mm-hmm. those two men were president. That's the first half of my life. Right. Everything that I know about the Republican Party, about reverence for the Constitution, about reverence for the presidency, about morals and mm-hmm. who we are as a mm-hmm. country, I learned as a result of Republicans being in charge. Right. And now these same people are now like, just ripped everything <laughs> up. Like, yeah. I don't even know what to what to think anymore. And I don't, uh, that's just me just what? unburdening myself because no, it, it is, it is galling. It is galling and it, and it is an unfair burden for you have 
uh, for you to have to bear um, as, as a black man, as a gay man, um, as an American. Um, whatever label you give yourself, whatever way you live your life, it is not for me. It is not certainly for some damn political party. Are you freaking kidding me? Sitting in judgment of the choices I make, the decisions I make, that's that's something that, you know, I move into communities where, you know, I have a role to play and I can, you know, go out and I can express myself. And, you know, that's how that plays itself out. But you don't get to come back around and tell me that my choices, my decisions, my life and all of that doesn't matter uh, or in order for it to matter, you have to live it a certain way or be a certain way. Um, and so you're absolutely right. From my, from my perspective, watching that, that timeline unfold and to watch this transformation from what George Bush, Herbert Walker Bush, described as compassionate conservatism to become hateful, spiteful, judgmental conservatism is not what the party has ever been about. Um, and I think, you know, we need to figure out how to unburden ourselves of that because it is not, it is certainly not the party of Lincoln and it's not something that any of uh, the men and women who helped really build and grow this party would ever ascribe to. You know, people should remember those who didn't listen to the first of your <laughs> your podcast interviews, which was the first Cape Up. Yeah. Uh, we got into talking about the fact that you were in seminary. Yeah. Like, the, the religion for you is not a hobby. It's not right. something that, you know, I can rattle off scriptures because, you know, right. I do that on the side. <laughs> no, you were studying. Yeah. You were in the priesthood. Yeah, I was studying for the priesthood. I, I wore the habit of the Augustinian order. Uh, for a short time as a seminarian, uh, and uh, so when I when I looked into the camera and I looked at Chris and those on that panel and said what I said, that came from a place of conviction. That came from a place of of recognition of what it was I was hearing from those men of the cloth, those men who who perpetuate this idea of evangelicalism that I found to be inconsistent with the evangelical men and women that I know. Um, many of whom are members of my family. Uh, and even though I'm Catholic, we've got, you know, the Baptists and, and uh, you know, Church of God in Christ. I mean, we've got a, a beautiful cross-section of folks, evangelical types in, in the family. So I, I, what I want to know is if you're the Catholic and then you've got the Baptists and the, what was the other one? The Church, uh, Church of God, yeah, Church, Kojic, yeah, Church of God in Christ. That, yeah. So that means you're the tamest, the calmest yeah. of the bunch. Yeah. I just want that to, let, let that just settle in, uh, yeah. people. I'm the quiet one. <laughs> the quiet. I'm the quiet one, just so people know. You, you, come, you come to our house for Thanksgiving, you're going to raise up some, some ugly religion stuff, you're going to get beat down pretty bad. You, know, you don't want my mama in that conversation, uh, you oh. know, or my, or my Aunt Mary. No, Lord, she's the, she's the church of God in Christ. So, mm -hmm. you know, she's not. Well, I didn't mean to interrupt your no, flow, but, but just, I was just fascinated by that. Yeah, it, but it does come from a place that, is born out of uh, a certain experience and understanding, listening and learning, and being taught as a young man in the seminary uh, how you value these things. And the first, the first one of the first lessons you learn is dying to self, so it's not about you. And the second is how you lift up and how you embrace and how you welcome. And I know that's not part of our politics today, 
which is why I think the state of our union is, in some sense, on a very personal level, shaky. Yes, the Dow Jones is 26,000 and roaring. Okay, great. And, you know, people are getting jobs and, and things are moving around and money's flowing from overseas and all that. But what's the soul of the country like? What, what, what are we like as Americans? What, what are we, when I look at you and you look at me, what do you see? What do you feel? If, you, if I saw you fall on a, a, you know, crossing a street, would I stop and you know, help you or would I walk past you? And if I knew you were a Democrat, would I stop and help you? That's what we've come to. I'd otherwise stop and help you, but if I knew you were a Democrat, no. If I knew you were a Republican, no. So the infection of uh, the American soul by our politics uh, to me, I think, has been the most damaging thing that's happened over the last two years. What role does the president play in that in the answer to your question what's the soul of the country like you know that I, I don't want to give him an outsized or any president an outsized role to play there but they do have a role we have historically from the very founding of the country looked at the president uh, as uh, not just a military leader not just a political leader but a moral leader um, and and you know, probably certainly a lot less today than there was back in the day, so to speak. Uh, our leaders were not afraid to express openly uh, their faith and belief in God, their, um, uh, you know, church-going habits, all that stuff. And that's fine. I mean, we're, I get that, you know, a lot of people, for as the country has grown and evolved and, and welcomed people of all kinds of traditions, that we're much more respectful and it's not down-your-throat kind of deal. But that still doesn't mean that the leader of the free world, the President of the United States, um, has uh, a, an obligation to project us, all right, and, and to project us in a way that best reflects the very values on which the country was founded. So we were founded on ideals and principles that talked about welcoming uh, people from foreign uh, shores to this shore. We were founded on principles about freedom and opportunity um, and and so forth and so on. So I think those those values still matter. And even in these days, Jonathan, the the idea that um, my faith tenets and teachings um, can be a part of of helping me shape policy and helping me uh, shape uh, the character of of the things that I'm involved in, that's not bad. The absence of that, the rejection of that, is where I think we run into a problem. Um, we've not had, we've never struggled in this vein before uh, until until now, and that's what bothered me so much about what I heard, um, you know, Franklin Graham and others say to excuse behavior that you know, you know. On Sunday morning, they're going to stand in a pulpit and condemn. <laughs> right, you know they are. You know they are. They're not going to. They're not going to condone adultery. They're not going to con- condone condone misogynist behavior towards women. They're not going to condone uh, views on race that even if you if you want to be gentile about it and not call it racist, certainly emboldens racism. All right, they're not going to be tolerant of that. And yet here they are, and I think, I think as a country, we should be concerned. What bothers me 
even further is the lack of concern yeah, that no, people seem to have. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. No, that's just him. That's just him. I'm like, okay. No, I, and I'm glad you brought up morality and race because where w- the moment I said, I cannot respect this person as president right. of the United States right. was that Tuesday press conference in August when President Trump said that there were fine people on both sides. I thought he squandered the moral authority of that office. Not squandered. He stripped that office of its moral authority. And for me, that was, um, of all the things that he has done, that he would do that and thereby unleash and give credence to the racial demons Um, that we have worked so hard to at least keep at bay. Right. But the fact that the president of the United States is is the one who's got the bullhorn in his hand and is riling them up, revving them up, was just something that I just could not, I couldn't countenance. And I don't know, to your point about the soul of the country, can we get it back mm. when the president of the United States feels compelled to do what he did with Charlottesville, to do what he's done, depending on the day, depending on the hour, depending on who talked to him last, on immigration. Right. This is the guy who started his campaign by saying Mexicans are rapists. Right, right. And um, But it find, finds himself now, you know, saying, oh, well, I'll, I'll give the children of those Mexicans a pathway to citizenship. So there, there, is, there is sort of this conflicting nature uh, within Donald Trump. And, and, uh, and I, I've come to appreciate that about him um, on many levels. Uh, and I think that when you, you know, going back and looking at that, that moment, which was a very important moment for a lot of, a lot of reasons, uh, some of which you've touched on, I think it also was one in which the president was not so much working out of a space of racism, like he was, he was being a racist in that moment. I think what he was doing I'm not saying that he isn't or that, you know, you got this look on your face. Yeah, I'm but, waiting, well, no, 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 but, waiting for the landing no, spot. Was, <laughs> well, what I'm saying is I think for him a whole bunch of things came together at one time, all right? And it, they all kind of converged. The, the, the political nod to, to part of his base, the um, – I don't, I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm condemning one side or not condemning the other side. You know, I think he, all this came up, and, and this is really making your point, that when you do not show the fortitude in a moment like that to stand on conviction, to stand on principle, then you do fall into the various traps that await you. Uh, and that inner thing in you comes out. And that's and that's why a lot of people looked at that moment and go, well, that was just racist. Yeah, and and you know, to Michelle Obama's point, the 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 job of president doesn't doesn't change you. It shows you who you are. It, and shows, it shows us the who it shows who, us who you are. Yeah, it, and and see, I don't think in Trump's case, this job is showing him who he is. He because he already has defined in his own head and mind who he is. So as much as the pressures and the and the aspects of the job that kind of press in on a president um, sort of reshapes them. And we've seen that. We've seen that. We've seen how 
certain presidents who did not have a very strong faith tradition wind up going to church every Sunday. You know, we've seen how this job kind of moves them through that particular funnel. <laughs> Donald Trump yeah. is impervious to it. And that's because for him, he is agnostic on all the things that that anchor most men and hopefully women one day in that job in a way that allows them to do the job with the level of sensitivity and understanding that would lead them to know, recognize in a Charlottesville moment, in a Charlottesville moment, there are no two sides. Right. There's only one side. And it's the side that says, sir, you are racist, you are wrong. This is not America. This is not who we are. Uh, And we will not tolerate it. We will not support it. We will not give it credence. And that, to your point, was a moment missed. And it was missed because the president hasn't grown into that aspect of the job. Well, you know, I was going to ask, why don't you think he has he has reverence for the job? Because I think he just sees it as a job. I think, he, A, he sees it as a job, and I think he sees it as, as a job he doesn't like. I was going to say, or a job he doesn't want. Yeah, jobs he doesn't like or doesn't want. Do you think the American people, well, let me recast the question. Should the American people trust the president? Should they trust I'd like President to, Trump? I, I think, I think, yeah. My hope is uh, I would like to see the American people trust the president, trust the institutions like the FBI and all the other things, uh, institutions that have come under fire, because that's that's foundational to who we are. But let me be let me be clear. Yeah, because I wasn't going down that route. I'm well, talking but about, no, but they're, about they're him in no, a different but, route. But they're linked. They actually are linked. And, mm-hmm. and it's all part of a bigger thing. Because what's happening now can and can and likely will have an impact on the next president and the president after that one. How we look at that person. Just think about how what what happened uh, in the short span between Nixon and Reagan, and how the American people began to feel about the American presidency and the president as a result of Watergate. Then you got to uh, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, and the whole malaise. You know, by the, it's just like, you know what, these guys, they can't, they can't get it right. They're criminals, they're crooks, they're whatever. And then Reagan came in with this, and people refer to it as this imperial presidency, but it wasn't about him being imperial and, and wanting all. It was about restoring that very nature and character of the presidency that we once trusted that we once trusted. And, and I think that, and we saw him do that. We saw him elevate the presidency in a way that moved the American people towards respecting it and trusting it. That's how, in many respects, to be honest, that's what helped Bill Clinton in some respects when he went through his stuff. Now, it, it tore at the edges, for sure. But that, a Bill Clinton in this environment today would the you know the question is would he even be impeached at this point <laughs> would be a whole di- i think the american people just kind of be dismissive of of him and the office very much as we see them being dismissive of this president uh and the office and that concerns me that really concerns me because it is one of the three institutions um that four if you include the fourth estate mm-hmm. the media uh, that that grounds the value system uh, that we define uh, as America. Well, my, you know, one of the things about the Watergate era that we don't have now is that we had a robust legislative branch. True. A legislative branch that was strong enough and secure enough 
where a Republican could go, a Republican member of Congress could right. go to the White House and say to the Republican president, right. Mr. President, if you do not resign, you will be impeached. And someone asked me the other day, who do, who do you think will be the Republican to go, if the time comes, will go to the White House and tell President Trump that the time is up, he has to resign? And I said, I don't think there's anybody. No one has the stature to do that, one. And two, what makes anybody think that President Trump would even listen to that person? Hey, well, that, that, requires, that requires somebody to have to your point, a core conviction, a right. reverence for the office, a reverence for the Constitution, a right. reverence for the country that is, personally speaking, lacking in the current occupant. Uh, so where's Congress? Agree, agreed on that. Agreed on the underlying issue question. Uh, the Congress is uh, landlocked, as, uh, as I like to call it, um, by or more appropriately uh, cemented. Uh, its feet are is c- uh, cemented by the poll numbers in, the, in their respective states and congressional districts that show the popularity of the president. That's, told, the, yep, yep, that's, that's the bottom line. That's so you, you will not see anyone begin to chisel away at that, that block of cement around their feet uh, until those numbers show that President Trump has lost popularity in their respective congressional districts or their state. Is of the that US even going to happen? I don't it foresee. Is ha- I don't foresee it's a happened. day where that will happen. No, it actually is happening. It uh, is happening. If polls are polls are, are showing that the the president, to to put it in generic terms, is wearing thin uh, for a lot of people, um, and that's why that's why there's been so much more hype by the administration uh, and certain members of Congress on one of several fronts. One is the the tax cuts. You know, oh my God, now you're gonna get all this money. Well you're gonna on average get about twenty bucks a paycheck if 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 that. And um, not to knock it. I mean twenty no, bucks is twenty not, bucks, I, but I mean you'd make it they make it sound I, like yeah, you've won a lottery yeah, ticket every yeah, I mean you, you, you know, exactly. So there is that. But the other is what you see happening with the Mueller investigation and the reinforcement of this negative uh, anti institution narrative um, that uh, surprises me still that Republicans are engaging in to the degree that they they have and are because these are the very same men and women who uh, lifted up Robert Mueller, um, <laughs> lifted up James Comey, lifted up, um, you know, a number of the individuals who have since come under fire as workaday heroes. These were the men and women who, you know, the ultimate in law enforcement. And now they're getting all up into <laughs> FISA hearings. You know, they're acting like they're violations of the constitutional rights. And no, <laughs> I said I had I had um, uh, Congressman um, Gomert on my uh, uh, on your radio on show, my radio Sirius show, XM. XM. Right. And and uh, I asked him, I said, so if, if things are as bad as you're saying them are, they are. Why hasn't the Congress changed the law? If all these violations have been going on by the FBI and other other bodies, you wrote the law, right? You 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 know you oh you have oversight. Where where's the oversight? And needless to say, the answer was, <laughs> yeah, they they don't want to do that part of the job. No, they don't. They're do more that. like staff. Yeah, to yeah. the executive. Yeah, yeah. In this and 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 have become increasingly so. Over the last 15 or so years, mm-hmm. and you, you can see the breakdown in that relationship uh, going back really to 
mm-hmm. where uh, the executive branch asserted itself at a time of national crisis, which we expect a, quote, commander-in-chief to do. Right. But what was lost and forgotten in translation was the constitutional requirement, which is why I've always emphasized from the very beginning that the president needed to go into the well of the United States Congress and make his declaration to the people of this country through its elected representatives. And that those representatives would then at that time either support or not support the president's declaration. That's how it's supposed to work constitutionally. You don't just get to wake up in the morning and go, oh, we're just going to call everybody an enemy combatant and go to war. That's not how it's supposed to work. You want, we, you know, that's why this whole Iraq war, uh, Vietnam war, and all the, no, because they weren't the only, the last war we had was World War II when Roosevelt went into the well and committed himself to his, ob- his constitutional obligation to lay it out before the American people through their elected representatives, and they voted on it. And that's, that's how this should work, because what it does is, in my view, it reinforces the president's hammer as commander-in-chief to then commit our men and women um, in, in uniform service to, to a military action. It, too, rallies the American people behind that action, And three, the Congress then has, I'll use the term, the cover, um, to then make the types of appropriations necessary without all the back and forth that we've seen over the last 15, 20 years. Every time, you know, it's time to to write a bill and you've got people arguing, well, we need to take care of our troops because we're at war. We, You know, all that stuff goes away. But that's not the space we're in. And that's why you need a strong congressional uh, and senatorial partner working with the executive. Okay, so um, what should happen if President Trump were to indeed succeed in firing Bob Mueller? What uh, should happen? I think, well, what should happen, what will happen, um, they should be the same thing, but probably, you know, this question is they would be. First, I think it would it create an immediate uh, congressional, I mean, constitutional crisis. I really do. I think it will push uh, and put a lot of Republicans back on their heels. They then will have to make a decision. They will have to make a decision. What What is the next thing that comes out of your mouth when that happens? Because the next thing that comes out of your mouth when that happens is probably the most important thing you will ever have said in the job of Congress as a congressman, woman, or a senator, period. So I don't know. Right now, my, my thought would be if, if recent um, narratives that have been unfolding about the president actually wanting to fire uh, and, and, and actually commanding the firing of the special counsel having that re, you know, blocked and pushed back by uh, the White House counsel, that, should, that says to me a lot about what members of Congress need to be on point about. You need to stand with the White House counsel. So if for some reason that system breaks out internally at the White House, then the backup has got to be the Congress, has got to be the Senate. Do you think the reason why we're hearing about this this story first leaked 
um, reported by the New York Times, and then quickly confirmed, quickly confirmed. by the Washington Post and the, and NBC News and all sorts of other organizations that this was... And, and more importantly, Fox News. And Fox <laughs> News in real time in on real Hannity's time. show yeah. that there was major concern that this was going to hap- like come up again and that they needed to put this news out there as a warning since the president watches the news right. to say, we see... That now everybody knows what you've been up to. Yeah, I, I think I think that there I think there was a lot of that. I I think there was a lot of uh, sort of flagging this that moment in June um, to push back on the president because I do believe that internally um, the president wants desperately to move in that direction of firing the special counsel. His problem is manifold. One. Um, the inside resistance from his own counsel and others, advisors. And, and two, um, I think it's going to be who will do it. Hmm. All right. We, I, I two questions before, before I let you go. Um, Time to go already. Yeah, I know. Right? Okay, so, Michael, why shouldn't we blame you for the current condition? That we're in? <laughs> <laughs> and I say uh, that because when uh, you, were, you were chairman of the <laughs> RNC... I did my you, job. You were the man who ushered in Republican rule. I the know. Tea Party Revolution hey, took over Congress the house in the steel 2010. <laughs> That's right, baby. I built that bad so boy I, out of steel. Yeah. Now, so having should, done that, I can't help it if they went inside and, and started tearing up the floorboards and knocking out the windows and and crapping all over the all over the house. I can't. That's not me. It's like, okay, I built it, and I got y'all place to be, and now this is how you're going to treat it? That's not on me. Having said that, what's important to note, I think, is, and it, it is frustrating, particularly when I look at the tax bill, because the men and women that I ran around the country with for, you know, 18 months, helping to get um, positioned, make the case to the American people, make the argument for why Republican leadership and Republican, um, uh, you know, not control of government, but uh, governing, governing, uh, governance was important as an a an important check on Obama, um, and and b um, to show uh, that we had the capacity to govern. Why that was important, and making those and making that that case was because it 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 really in it. It resonated for me at the time, and I loved the contrast between where the president, President Obama, was going, and where I thought, you know, Republican philosophies and ideas around certain policies would also rest. All right, so I'm, you know, I'm naive that way. I'm thinking this will be a great little battle. Now, what was interesting was a lot of those folks who were part of Tea Party and 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 the like. They were very much about the constitutional principle that you know. Government should be limited. Government should not spend more than it takes in. We should not grow the national debt. We should not create deficits. This <laughs> you, is what no, they, that's what it was. This is what it was. And now look where we are. I don't know what the hell happened because as I sat there and watched them vote for a $1.5 trillion debt increase, a number that's going to be placed on the backs of every um, young person uh, born today, uh, will have to account for that $1.5 trillion uh, during the course of their lifetime, plus whatever else is there, the other $20 trillion that's there. I, could, I didn't understand that. It made no sense because it was inconsistent 
And it has been inconsistent with what we said we wanted to do, how we would govern, that we wanted to manage the nations. We watched President Obama for a whole host of reasons, some good, some not so good, um, watch the, the uh, national debt grow under his term. We got pissed as conservatives, fiscal hawks and Republicans, during the Bush years, watching the national debt grow uh, from what was then several hundred billion dollars to close to, tri- to $10 trillion. Uh, um, so we, we rebelled against that, and yet we watched them just embrace it and create debt. So I don't know. So don't blame me. I'm seeing a psychotherapist as well. I'm trying to figure <laughs> it out. So, you know. And then, and then finally, Chairman Steele, former um, chair of the Republican Party, given everything that you've just said, why are you still a Republican? Because of what I just said. Because of the last thing I just said in terms of those things, those values that I still hold true to, I think they're worth fighting for. I'm not ready to see to see the party that I've now been a member of for 40 years. 40 years of my life I've been a member of this party. And I'm not, I'm not ready to cede that ground because it, I think about the, the 17-year-old kid who, who took the risk, went against the odds, went against the grain growing up here in Washington, D.C., um, that was you know, very much, why would you do that? My own mother asked me that question. <laughs> Just like, what, what is your problem? But I saw something uh, that made sense to me. And I watched and learned and listened uh, and understood that, you know, the Republican Party is the political home for, for the African-American community. It was. And, 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 and I still believe it should be. Um, and so part of my, my goal, my ideal, I guess, is to get that back. I tried it as chairman. I tried it when I was a county chairman. I was a state chairman as national chairman and had fairly, you know, you know, degrees of successes along the way in doing that. Uh, but what I see now where I have a president who acknowledges the racism on the other side is okay, who, who refers to, um, the homeland that my family came from is a shithole. Um, I know that's not my party. I know that's not conservatism. I know that's not republicanism. And so that's, that for me engages up for me the fight. I, I just think it's worth the fight to, to prove that that's not who we are. And I wish, to be honest with you, Jonathan, I wish more in my party would do that. I don't know what they're afraid of. As, as I would say to my evangelical friends, you can support the president's policies and still condemn his behavior. Michael Steele, former chair of the Republican National Committee, host of Steele and Unger on Sirius XM Radio. Thank you very much for Thank coming you, back Jonathan. a third time. A third time. I, I'm going to get a little plaque on the wall and put up in here and then put my face there and my name. Okay, maybe not. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like 
Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.